Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we focus on the local demonstrations in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. First, we'll catch up with Charlottesville tomorrow about what they saw on the ground at the Charlottesville protests. We'll also talk to Sarad Davenport of Vinegar Hill Magazine about how the same systemic inequities fueling worldwide demonstrations exacerbate the impact of COVID-19 in communities of color. And stay tuned to hear some of the conversations about police brutality happening in the rural parts of our area. We would be fooling ourselves if we believed that racism didn't exist everywhere because it does. Um, it does exist in Fluvanna County. I'd like to take just a brief moment of pause in memory of uh, George Floyd, uh, Miss Brianna Keeler, and others who have uh, met their, their demise. But for right now, whether you can take a knee or sit, we need to take a moment of silence for all of that applause. So the big story here and everywhere is the mass demonstrations for Black Lives Matter. Can you tell us about the demonstrations that have happened here in Charlottesville? There's been a few of them so far and another one coming up soon. And some combination of myself or Billy, our education reporter, or one of our freelancers, Mike, we've all been present. Largely, they've been organized by Zayana Bryant, Don Gathers, and Kong. Um, And when I've been reaching out to Black Lives Matter Charlottesville to schedule some interviews, they reiterate that it's more than just, you know, BLM, but it's also the People's Coalition. And so far when we've been, like, the attendance ranges from several hundred to about a thousand to there was one last week that it was huge. There were probably over a thousand, they estimated. What are the demands? One of them was actually met recently there's been a uh, kind of a call to remove um, or end the school resource officer contracts. So getting Charlottesville's police department and Albemarle County police department school resource officers out of schools. And this week, the school board for Charlottesville worked on that, made a motion to move forward with that while the county school board is still just pondering if they really want to and just examining it a little bit more. Some other demands that uh, the movement has had in this area has been the demilitarization and defunding of police. I'll be working on a piece that kind of breaks down what that means in all the different nuances and what that would look like here. Ending targeted surveillance of black and brown residents. Last fall, I know that there were some cameras put up in certain neighborhoods that people were really frustrated when they figured out that that was happening. And then an increase in the number of people being released from jail and prison due to the risk of COVID in those close quarters throughout the state, but also at local jails here in our health district. We're in the middle of the pandemic. There's all the social distancing and uh, layoffs and people are stuck at home and Still, despite all of that, there was just an instance of police brutality and 
people are now just like calling out for like something has to change that this doesn't take a holiday. I mean, six years ago, Eric Garner was saying the same words, I can't breathe back in 2014. And here we are again, six years later, and it's finally just reached a boiling point where people are tired of of just saying, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And now they're just saying, all right, well, <laughs> we're going to be occupying the streets and making a lot of noise. You're going to have to listen to us. Have there been instances of police brutality, excessive force, and law enforcement misconduct in our area? There have been some high-profile cases where people have faced excessive force. The two that quickly come to mind for me because they happened around when I arrived here where there were two EVA students who faced action from the plainclothes ABC agents, as best as I can recall, no longer has its own sort of police force. But there was Elizabeth Daly who was surrounded by undercover officers in Barracos Shopping Center where they mistook sparkling water that she purchased for a case of beer. And in another instance was there was a, another UVA student on the corner, Martise Johnson, who was trying to enter one of the restaurants and was turned away at the door. And once again, plainclothes ABC agents walked up to him and were attempting to put him into custody. And he had no idea who they were. They were just these guys in regular street clothing, just approaching him the next thing you know he was just thrown on the ground and his face is bleeding. How has local law enforcement responded to the demonstrators? CPD has not intervened. They've been present but they've been staying back and giving demonstrators their space and things have gone smoothly here at the rallies that we've in marches we've had so far. It hasn't gone so smoothly in other localities. There's been so many instances of law enforcement using force, using extreme measures to break up crowds even when everything has been peaceful. Of course, in 2017, there was a heavy police presence, but a lot of people felt that they did not protect citizens here. And then the uh, following year in 2018, on the anniversary, there was yet again another heavy police presence. Things were like completely locked down, but the city was pretty barren except for some local demonstrators who were constantly followed by the police officers and that led to their complaint of why are they following us and not the white supremacists who were here the year before. And so I I feel that that what's the context of their response to the protests this time around was that they didn't want to be this heavy presence following the demonstrators in the city and then also the demonstrations in Charlottesville happened after the ones in other cities where police departments and protesters escalated things. And we saw on live TV how they quickly got out of hand when police officers were launching strict curfews or trying to, as Charlotte said, trying to break up the crowds that are peacefully demonstrating and almost at times seemed like they were the ones provoking the violent responses. And I can see that like in Charlottesville, nobody wanted a repeat of that here. Yeah, one uh, moment from the first post-George Floyd death march that happened here a couple weekends ago, there was a moment during the march where a a young guy uh, lit off a firework, and one of the um, participants, Rosia Parker, she just went into mom mode, and she lectured everyone about be safe, don't give any, any ounce of wiggle room for any chaos to ensue, or any provocation with law enforcement, just because we don't know how it's going to go down. And she also just reiterated, Katrina Turner, who's also an activist involved, had a shirt on that day that said Black Lives Built Charlottesville. And they reiterated that a few times during the march. Like, we're not going to have anything go awry in our city. 
um, at least not again. What do protesters and health experts say about the fact that we're seeing huge protests in the midst of a pandemic? Definitely at a rally that I attended, most of the people wore face masks most of the time. Um, there was as much an effort as, of social distancing as possible. Hand sanitizer was passed around. And health officials definitely say, obviously, it's hard to social distance when you're in an environment like that. But keeping your mask on the whole time can be helpful because when you're shouting and chanting, COVID is spread through droplets, through speaking. That's why they say to wear masks because you know it helps protect others in case you do have it and are asymptomatic. A lot of people just, they decided just to, to raise the, the pros and cons of protesting in a pandemic. And for a lot of them, I did see that they decided that they, they could not stay home because of this. And even in the middle of us, like trying not to be outside or anything, this, this still occurs. I, I can't stay at home and just let this go unanswered. And also something that organizers have been saying in interviews and at rallies, there are other ways to be involved too. You can take it a step further and do other things in addition or instead of that, if you are a little concerned to leave your house right now during the pandemic, donating to bail bonds. If you are driving around and, for instance, you see a black or brown person being pulled over by the police or being stopped by law enforcement coming out of a store, just watch what's going on. Be there in case things go awry because then you're helping document the situation. And part of what has been spurring all of this has been the fact that these deaths at the hands of law enforcement have been documented. So let's talk about the upcoming election, starting with the primaries in the 5th Congressional District. That seat is currently held by Republican Denver Riggleman, and he's facing a convention challenge from Bob Good. Can you give us an update on the Republican process of picking a nominee? In terms of the 5th Congressional District, the local GOP decided to have a convention. So that's actually taking place on June 13th. And it's a drive-through convention, correct? Yes, a drive-through convention in Campbell County, which is where Bob Good, the Republican challenger, lives and has been on the Board of Supervisors there. There is also, in June 23rd, is the primaries for the Democratic nominee and for the Republican nominee for Senate. So outside of the 5th District, that's for the House. For our Senate, we have um, incumbent Senator Mark Warner He's been in office for many years, and he is being challenged by three Republican challengers. Can you tell us about those challengers? Uh, So Daniel Gade is a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army, and he's currently a professor at American University. After he was injured in Iraq and it resulted in the loss of one of his legs, uh, he actually went on to serve Presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump on advisory councils advocating for disabilities. And like most GOP candidates, he's fiscally conservative, he's pro-life, pro-Second Amendment. He does buck away from his party in a certain stance where he feels that the U.S. military is too involved outside of the country, and he doesn't think that it needs to be involved in as many things. And then Alyssa Baldwin, she is a Lunenburg County school teacher. She is pretty standard in Republican principles as well, especially fiscal conservatism, She calls herself a constitutional purist. She has experience working with interning or volunteering for other GOP candidates and officials at the state and local level. And in supporting limited government, she, as a teacher actually, wants to trim some of the U.S. Department of Education. She says that federal government sometimes could be a little bit leaner in default to state and local governments for what people need. And then the other one is Thomas Special. He is also another veteran. We got a lot of veterans in a lot of the races right now. I've been in the process of trying to arrange an interview with him 
Can you tell us a little bit about the four Democratic candidates running in the 5th District? They all tend to echo a lot of similar stances. I've watched a lot of candidate forums. I've spent an hour with each of them. They just have different areas of like particular expertise. So Cameron, he has legal and medical experience. He has studied law. He's studied medicine. He's practiced medicine. He was a White House fellow. He served Obama and Trump for six months each. Claire, she has leadership and strategy experience. Also one of many veterans. John Lasinski has local government experience, having been on school board and board of supervisors in Rappahannock County. RD really wants to build on existing policies that he's seen other state legislators doing. He really loves some ideas that Tim Kaine has and wants to kind of bolster those from the House side of things. And he also really wants to make sure that more people have access to higher education and also vocational trade skills. They really all bring a lot as Democratic nominee. It's just a matter of who voters decide they f- they like the best or feel can do the best, most encompassing job of representing this district, which is frankly a large district with a lot of nuances and types of constituents. So like both the Democrats and the Republicans are never going to have the easiest time representing this district. Voting is going to look a little different this cycle. What are the various ways people can vote? Unlike traditional cycles where in-person tends to be the main method, it's been advised and heavily, heavily advised that people do absentee ballot. So the deadline to register to receive your ballot is June 16th, and then it has to be received by June 23rd or it won't count. So it's, the, it's getting down to the wire. The time is ticking. And the, I spoke with the county registrar and he was saying like, Do not delay, get it as soon as possible, open it up and vote as soon as possible. And he also says open it up and vote as soon as possible to check as well, because there's been the highest number of absentee ballots basically ever so far this election cycle. And in the process of applying, there are increased margins of errors where you could end up receiving the wrong ballot, like a person that I spoke with this week did. Um, She accidentally ended up clicking the wrong bubble on the website and... She wound up with a Republican ballot when she's like, hey, I'm a Democrat. What should you do if you think you received the wrong ballot? So when you get it, open it up as soon as possible. When I did mine, it it said it had the envelope with the ballot. It said, do not open until you're ready to vote. But I think by the time it gets in the mail, you should be ready to vote. You should know who you want to um, vote for at that point. So open it up, make sure it's the correct ballot send it in right away. If it is wrong, call your county or city registrar, depending on where you live, immediately and let them know. And then set up a time to come in. The only way to resolve that is to actually physically go in at that point, which the whole point of the absentee ballot is to avoid going in. But at that point, you'll have to go in and vote in person and get that and turn in the the wrong ballot. And then meanwhile, the registrars are working on different election polling places on making sure they have protocols in place for that day in order to be able to vote safely, as safe as possible amidst a pandemic. And if you have your ballot sitting there and you haven't made up your mind so you can't send it in, go read the voter guide because there's lots of great information about the candidates. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good weekend, y'all. You too. Thank you for having us. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. In our next segment, we check back in with Sarad Davenport of Vinegar Hill Magazine. 
So the last time we talked, there was only one installment in your Determined series with Charlottesville Tomorrow, and now there are four. First of all, can you remind us what the Determined series is about? The Determined series um, really centers around the social determinants of health, and those uh, determinants being the neighborhood and built environment that people live in, health and healthcare systems, social and community contexts, education, of course, and economic stability. And the idea was to contextualize COVID in a broader conversation about the ecosystem that supports cities, towns, communities, states all over, and how oftentimes these ecosystems are fractured and we are losing people to some of these fractures within the system. And the idea for the Determined series is that even though these broken systems have existed and we need to have some self-reflection as system leaders and professionals, people have been resilient and they have been, they have found a way to develop their own systems and ways coping and, and striving and even in those broken systems, but it doesn't let us off the hook. What are the topics of the latest three articles in the series? Uh, so the one that just came out was determined to be free, and that deals with the criminal justice system and infrastructure around the criminal justice system. So, you know, there, there are some profiles within that actual story about people who have experienced the criminal justice system and, you know, kind of overcome some of the obstacles that are apparent in that. The key takeaways, you know, for this one is that, you know, people who were formerly incarcerated were incarcerated in a system that was fundamentally unjust from the beginning, right? Their re-engagement in the community through the Home the Hope program is, I think, exceptional. It's exciting to see that they can have some form of restoration and then some form of acknowledgement that the system harmed them. That acknowledgement is an important statement and reconciling these folks back to the community in a way that they can be a part of the solution to helping people that come out of incarceration, get employed, start businesses and things of that nature, I think is phenomenal. The article before that was about housing and um, the, some of the folks who have been involved in the process of making sure that people can keep their, their homes and also thinking about low-income housing and making sure that, you know, we're being responsive to some of those issues within the community and built environment. This article helped to remind me the connection. The dynamics that play into housing are other economic factors, such as education, a living wage, people being able to really afford to live and work and play in this area. So, and then, you know, we had a series on, you know, food and food justice. There's a, there's a food justice network and there's also um, Cultivate Charlottesville, all which focus on healthy food and, and how some communities don't have access to healthy food and, you know, how all of these contribute to um, issues with uh, chronic illness, um, like high blood pressure, diabetes that disproportionately affect, you know, Black communities and communities of color in general and like how are we really discussing that? A big part of food justice in Charlottesville has been around um, urban agriculture. 
you know, in many of these communities and even at the school system level with um, city school yard gardens and also the urban agriculture collective, there are gardens that are producing tons of produce. I mean, literally tons of produce that make it more accessible for folks who may have convenience stores near their neighborhood, but they don't have healthy options that near their neighborhood that have produce, fresh produce at all times and to support not only just having the produce there, but a dialogue around health, right? And I think that's the most powerful thing and it extends further into justice. And that's what the article you'll find out is that food justice is something that extends beyond just the food. It goes into like quality of life, health outcomes, and it goes into housing and what is in proximity to those who you know may be um, in poverty. So, so those, are a few that have been discussed since the first Determined to Work article came out. Since we talked last, there have been mass demonstrations for Black Lives Matter, including here in Charlottesville. To what extent are the demands of these demonstrators related to the social determinants of health? They're very related, right? You can't talk about it without dealing with the systemic factors. You know, people aren't marching because of one particular thing. They're marching because the system is fractured, because the system is broken. I think that the George Floyd situation made people really move into action, but it wasn't just about that. It was about all the systemic factors that have contributed to this lack of thriving. You don't get a worldwide action just because of one incident. It's because of a system that is fractured, and there are people excluded from a strong ecosystem that helps people to thrive and be healthy and have a high quality of life in the richest country in the world. You can find the Determined series at VinegarHillMagazine.com and at SeavilleTomorrow.org. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute and protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our last segment, I sit down with Hayden Parrish. We grew up together in Fluvanna County, and he recently moderated a Zoom forum on police brutality and racial justice in Fluvanna County. This event is dedicated to the lives of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Nina Pop, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, and the countless other Black lives that our government or society has murdered. I am angry that the protest I attended in high school and in college dissipated. I am outraged that this national outpouring did not begin with Breonna Taylor's murder. I am frustrated that not everyone recognizes the urgency of this crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about all the panelists? The Monday before the event, I reached out to Moselle Booker, um, who is a current member of the Board of Supervisors for the county representing the Fort Union District. Her husband was the first Black person elected to be one of the Board of Supervisors. She was the first Black woman to be elected after her husband's death. Both of them were chair people on the Board of Supervisors. They have a long history here. She was born here, attended Rosenwald schools growing up, has been a lifelong educator. And she was, of course, just the first person that came to mind when I was thinking of Black leaders in our county. This board strongly denounces the actions that resulted in Mr. Ford's death. 
and understand the emotions that this arises locally and around the world. This board adamantly rejects words, actions, and policies that foster division and bring out bigotry, hatred, and discrimination. Fluvanna County has shown its strength during our current and continuing pandemic. Fluvanna residents have answered the call, mobilizing and providing support and care to neighbors, showing through actions the understanding that Fluvanna is a united community. And she spoke to Ben Hudson, who is the president of the NAACP for the county. He also works at the high school. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We need to continue to have a constructive dialogue by working in partnership for us, for our local community, with our local community leaders. Continue to identify problems as well as identify solutions to those problems. Working as a collaborative body between the community and those leaders. And, and he encouraged me to reach out to the sheriff and to the Commonwealth's attorney. We only use force enough to overcome the subject's resistance. The subject resistance can go up and down like a roller coaster during the encounter. So our level of force must respond accordingly. Once we have the subject under control, they are our responsibility and we must take care of them and get them medical treated, treatment if needed. We must work hard to maintain the trust and recognition of our community as being a legitimate authority while operating in a compassionate and procedurally sound manner while enforcing the laws of the Commonwealth. When the quarantine permits, the Sheriff's Office looks forward to reviving our community forums. PowerPoint presentations and demonstrations uh, would probably be very helpful to a lot of people to understand uh, how we do business as a Sheriff's Office. Uh, a lot of my command staff has already come forward with, with uh, to volunteer to, to, to help with any presentations, anything that the community would need to understand better on how we do our job. We, along with our Commonwealth Attorney, Attorney's Office, will be reaching out to our African-American community starting with today's participants. Both were immediately ready to participate. They were both the first people who confirmed that they were willing to, to speak. Mr. Hudson was the first speaker. Um, Sheriff Hess spoke. The Commonwealth Attorney Jeff Hazlip spoke. We've done away with cash bails in Fluvanna County uh, for quite some time. I try to get as many people out on, you know, on unsecured bonds. If they need some type of treatment or checking in with probation, we'll have pretrial supervision. But I think only those that folks that are dangerous to society should be held until they're found guilty. And I don't think that someone who can't uh, scrape together a hundred bucks uh, to pay to put down a thousand dollar bond should sit in jail for a minor offense when they haven't been found guilty yet. And I think that's one of those things that's built into our system that has a disparate impact um, on communities of color. And it's something that just really needed to go and it's been gone for some time here. The director of rural outreach for MACA, Arthur Armstrong, spoke. When George Floyd died from mistreatment of the police system. The country banded together in letting the world know that this is not right, which was very impressive. But when the coronavirus 
hit our states, which also affected Fluvanna County and the businesses in Fluvanna and the other um, needed resources, they became unavailable for the citizens. Fluvanna County, churches, private citizens, all types of clubs banded together to make sure not one family went hungry in Fluvanna. And that was done through donations from the citizens of Fluvanna County. MACA has been able to serve any Fluvanna resident that comes to request food assistance, and we're still able to serve any family that is in need of food. Bailey Lyshawn, who is one of my former students from last year, and she's a rising sophomore at William & Mary, um, she spoke about kind of youth activism, um, as well as the importance of recognizing the intersection of race and sexual identity. Joyce Space, who is the county registrar, came and talked about absentee voting and how to vote safely during a pandemic. There are many ways that you can um, apply for an absentee ballot. You can call the office and we can mail you the application. You need to get that application back to us by next, by next Tuesday, the 16th, in order for us to mail your ballot. You can also go online through the Department of Elections website and that application will come directly to us through the state board's hopper. You would need to have your driver's license ID number if you're doing that. Ryan Washington, who is the former Fluvanna County Sheriff, but also a retired Deputy Secretary for Public Health under Governor Northam spoke. I can first speak to the fact that we would be fooling ourselves if we believed that racism didn't exist everywhere because it does. Um, it does exist in Fluvanna County. And so until we have that statement, broad statement, and acknowledge that it exists, we would be fooling ourselves and just sugarcoating the conversation. I say that not because of what someone has told me, uh, what I've heard, but as a personal experience uh, of my time and life in Fluvanna County. I too have two, um, Young men, uh, they're not boys anymore, they're young men, young adults. And I can tell you from the time that they were able to understand what I was talking about, I embedded in them the importance of understanding that you are a black male, and your daddy is the sheriff, and your daddy was a trooper, and on and on and on in my career I could talk about it, about how important it was that they understood not from the perspective of what your daddy's position is, but the fact that there are some no matter what, still see you as a black male and would take an opportunity to be racist and discriminatory towards you. And then it closed with Margot Bruce, who is a pastor in our county, but also the principal of the high school. And I think one of the major problems that we currently have in the Virginia school system is that we're not teaching enough about African-American history in our classrooms therefore allowing a lot of students to just not know about the oppression or uh, the history of African-Americans. It was very disheartening a few days ago to receive an email from a student who said, "Miss Bruce, I've learned more on my own in three days than I have in 11 years of being in school. And um, just reading those words, um, it just, it hurts because I've begged and I've asked and I know that the state is currently rewriting the history SOLs that will 
include more of African-American history, but I just feel that we can do a better job in our system because what you don't know, you don't know. So I want to pray this afternoon for unity and harmony. And so if we could just quieten our hearts um, and our minds and just go to the Lord um, with prayer um, and just pray with me as I pray along with you. We commit in the name of Jesus and according to the power of God at work in us to be of one and the same mind, united in spirit, sympathizing with one another, loving each other as brethren, of one household, compassionate and courteous, tenderhearted and humble-minded. So Father God, we ask right now for forgiveness. If we've ever had a racist thought or if we ever had a racist action, Father, we ask that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And so be it. Amen. 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 Sheriff Hess will be speaking about these points as well as addressing questions provided by the NAACP. He has also agreed to stay around <laughs> afterwards and answer some questions. And I was just wondering, since the death of George Flood, um, you know, what have you done or what have you spoken to your officers about in order to, um, you know, reinforce the need for um, racial profiling to end and just um, equality for African-Americans? This is uh, Pastor Barrett from the West Bottom Baptist Church. Um, my question to you today is, is that um, trust goes a long, a long way. And um, before I left church this morning, I asked a couple of my young people, uh, do they have trust in our uh, local sheriff department? I had to say that some of them uh, did not. And so my question is, how can we build the trust between the sheriff and the community? Um, and one of the things that I want to bring up, and I'll, I'll let you um, uh, bring up your suggestion too, but one of the things is that... Um, and our chef department, um, we, we would love to see more African-Americans uh, because we don't see that as much as we would like to see. And I, I know you, you said the budget is kind of low or whatever, but um, we would love to see that. We would love to see our sheriff even more in our communities talking because I believe if we talk, I believe if they trust us, it's, it's better for both, better for the community and better for the sheriff department. I know that um, in the newspaper, sometimes you public you publish like the statistics um, of like how many um, drunk drivers, how many you know different things have gone on in the county. I'm just wondering, do you keep statistics on um, you know how many African Americans have been involved, or do and if so, how do you use that information? Uh, is it possible to talk to Miss Hazel real quick? Right here. Motive is always a hard thing to prove, and yet people are talking from day one about the racial motive behind the killing. Maybe they're, maybe they're jumping to conclusions, I don't know, because I'm trying to be objective about this and say, okay, did he make any racial statements before, during, or after the, the, the incident? And if so, it's gonna be an awfully hard thing to actually prove until an investigation's done that there was a racial bias. Hayden, do you have anyone who would like to talk about implicit bias? It seems like it would be an appropriate time to bring that up. My name is Stacy Smith. I'm a Fluvanna resident. Um, I want to thank everyone on the panel today. Um, you know, if we want to be real, our churches are segregated. Uh, the black go to the black church, the white go to the white church, and they're 
there's some mixed churches in our area, but, um, you know, as far as the officers being out in the community, um, we welcome you to just stop by a cookout or a program, not just during election time, um, but, but just we welcome you anytime. And I think that's how we can build that relationship, not just at a traffic stop. And if, if it's helpful for you to know like the events that's going on in the community, visit the church's pages, you know, Facebook pages, like we post stuff. And I think that's, that's just building that trust. Um, what, what Pastor Barrett said, you know, building that trust and um, just being out there is, is, and you know, not just the black churches, visit the white churches too, just build that trust and, and bring the community together. This is um, Nadia Anderson. Um, I just had a suggestion maybe for our board of supervisors to possibly may, maybe create something like a diversity affairs commission to ensure um, racial and ethnic equality and kind of advocate for the minority populations in the area because I know we are focusing um, on black and white issue, but we do have a, a number of um, immigrants and refugees and, you know, just a lot of different other group subcultures in our community. Mm -hmm. And maybe as an idea that this commission could kind of run concurrently with the board of supervisors, just. My name is Hayden Parrish. I am a lifelong Fluvanna County resident. I graduated from the University of Virginia in 2018 with degrees in sociology and African and African-American studies. I'm currently an AmeriCorps member working in Fluvanna County High School as a college advisor for the College Advising Corps. My family has been in this county for 11 generations since before the county was even founded, before it was carved out of Albemarle County. And with that, my family was a slave-owning family. And I was very conscious of that growing up and how I recognized racial barriers in my community, but also knowing that my family were the ones that erected them and I was still benefiting them from them to this day. And I think that's what motivated me for so long. My family's former plantation is now the county park, and it's also um, the same land that our high school is built on that I go to work in every day. And something I try to be conscious of, of just the history of specifically my family on the land that I still work with every day. I think the first step is just being conscious because there's not always, there's not consistently action steps to be taken. Of course, when there are action steps, I try and support them as wholeheartedly as possible. For example, in our county park near the high school, um, on my family's former plantation is our, the Hidden Family Cemetery. And my dad has found, I think it's 17 unmarked graves in that cemetery. And we're assuming that they are the graves of enslaved laborers. My family and the Historical Society have both fundraised to put a fence up around that cemetery. But we've also going back and forth on the wording of the sign that'll be placed there, like the historical marker that'll be placed there. And I'm doing my best to advocate for more action-oriented language in that plaque and not having the enslaved laborers' potential gravestones be afterthoughts. The NAACP is already planning future forums to have other speakers, to have other leaders come and hear from citizens and residents. 
the sheriff's office had already planned to hold town halls to have asked questions and give demands. So I think those are some of the next steps. I think something that is easy to forget but important to remember is that ending racism and educating about racism is not the duty of people who are being oppressed and being discriminated against. It is up to the people who are perpetuating that mentality and benefiting from those systems to educate themselves. George Floyd! George Floyd! Breonna Taylor! Breonna Taylor! Breonna Taylor! Breonna Taylor! No peace! Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. No peace. No peace. Police. 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 George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. No peace!